Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Joyce Vance. There's a lot of legal news this week. We've learned more details about the investigation into Florida Congressman Matt Gates. So we'll do a deeper dive into those allegations and discuss what it means to be a cooperating witness, since there's news that Gates's buddy, Joel Greenberg, may plead guilty. We'll also take a look into vaccine passports and talk about possible jury outcomes as the Chauvin trial heads into its third week. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. So, y'all, vaccine passports, it actually makes me think about the possibility that at some point in the future, we'll be taking vacations again. Yes. Um, I have not been out of Birmingham in over a year, which is such a strange thing to think about. Not all bad. Um, But I'm really looking forward to our first family hiking trip, maybe going back to Iceland or going to Montana or someplace up in Canada where we can just get out and hike and and see a lot of plants and animals. Um, Barb, what about you? What's your first vacation plan? Well, like you, Joyce, I really like um, national parks when um, in the before times we made it uh, our family vacation destination every year to go to visit a different national park. And we've been to a lot of them, but I have a personal quest to visit all 50 states. I've been to 48 of the 50 states remaining our Alaska, which is one of those like retirement bucket list trips. But the other one is oh so tantalizingly close, North Dakota. So I am secretly plotting a trip to Roosevelt National Park so we can get to North Dakota and I can check it off my list. So we'll see if I'm able to uh, prevail. How about you, Jill? Where's your your next vacation? Well, I also love hiking. I love adventure travel. My husband and I go to places that my friends cannot believe I actually go. We have been to Borneo and New Guinea and stayed with native huts, not, you know, there's no hotels. Um, I would love to do my next trip to see the gorillas, the mountain gorillas. That is something I'd really like to do. But um, traveling abroad is still pretty tricky. So I am actually planning to visit my goddaughter and her family in Milwaukee. I have a trip planned to Memphis for the Civil Rights Museum and Graceland. And that's a trip that was supposed to happen last July and obviously didn't happen. So it's going to happen hopefully this July. I will be there. I'm looking forward to to that as maybe my first trip. Um, I forgot how to even use the airline, you know, to make a reservation. When I went to reserve this one, it was like, I haven't done this in over a year. And I used to travel almost every week. So I'm really looking forward to it. What about you, Kim? Yeah, this is all giving me such wanderlust. These are all really, really great destinations. Um, like like you guys, I think the first trip will probably be domestic. And I just would love to see the ocean again, whether it's going up to Maine uh, and seeing the Atlantic or visiting my good friends in L.A. and getting a peek at the Pacific that would be really wonderful to do sometime this year. And then in the long term, um, I've been thinking a little bit about potential honeymoon destinations and perhaps Japan. Um, neither, my, neither my fiance nor I have been to Japan. And so that's sort of on a bucket list. There are some, again, hiking related um, trips that are that look really good out there. So that might be it. Those all sound lots really of information fun. on that. I, I've been working there for a long time. Oh, and good. it's my husband's uh, business is uh, oriental art. So um, let's help you plan it. All right. We're going to talk. And I'm and glad we- to know that all the sisters so enjoy hiking. I did not know about that about us. We have something in common. So when we finally can all get together somewhere, perhaps a hiking destination. Mm-hmm. Yes, that would be great. That's what Getting I was thinking. Maybe there's a sisters-in-law podcast from a national park. Maybe we'll all go to Glacier or something like that. Oh, that would be so fun. That sounds like a, a great thing to get to look forward to. Um, but on a serious note, our first topic today involves the Matt Gates investigation. Barb? Yeah, let me jump right into it. Um, there's news today that Matt Gates, uh, perhaps taking uh, these allegations very seriously, has hired some lawyers to represent him, some very fancy New York lawyers, Mark Mukasey and Isabel Kirshner, 
who have represented uh, people connected with the Mueller investigation and the former uh, governor of New York. So uh, some high-powered people um, here. And um, it's uh, just to give you a little background and remember where we were on this case, um, Matt Gates has uh, told the world himself uh, that he is under investigation by the Department of Justice for sex trafficking of a minor, which he denies. Uh, he is a congressman from Florida, has been in office since 2016. And yesterday we also got some new developments that um, there is potential cooperation from a an associate named Joel Greenberg. He's a former tax collector in Florida. And he his lawyer indicated to the judge in his case that he may be cooperating with authorities. Uh, his lawyer told the judge that they were negotiating a plea deal. Greenberg was charged last summer with sex trafficking a minor, stealing from his office and fraud. Um, and it appears, at least uh, reports are piecing together, that it may have been in that Greenberg investigation that investigators discovered the role of Matt Gates. Of course, these are all still just allegations, uh, but Matt Gates has, has said that he is under investigation for sex trafficking by the Department of Justice. So let's talk about some of these um, wrinkles. You know, again, we don't know everything about his investigation, really just what he himself has revealed. Uh, we don't even know whether he is a target or subject of an investigation. So why don't we start there? Joyce, um, can you talk with us a little bit about the meanings of those terms, subject and target of an investigation and the significance of them? Sure. Those are all terms of art for federal prosecutors. So when Barb and I were, were at DOJ and we were trying to decide whether or not to indict a case, one of the first resources that we had was to use what we used to call the U.S. Attorney's Manual. It's been recently renamed and now it's called the Justice Manual. And it sets out the federal principles of prosecution. And one of the most important parts of that, at just really a, a baseline level, is figuring out who you're dealing with and what sort of classifications people fall into. Some people are mere witnesses. They observed events that you're interested in. Some people are subjects. They've engaged in conduct that falls within the scope of a grand jury investigation. I would call them maybes. Maybe they get indicted. Maybe they don't. And then there are targets. Those are people who you've developed significant evidence on. It's very likely that they'll be in, uh, rather that they'll be indicted. Maybe they'll become cooperating witnesses. Maybe not. But targets are the people that you're primarily focused on who look like really good candidates for prosecution. So that's a good starting point. Yeah. And of course, if you ask, uh, you know, if you hire a lawyer and the lawyer reaches out to the prosecutor and asks whether the client is a target or not a target, frequently they'll tell you. And that can be helpful in deciding how to represent your client, whether you want to cooperate, work out a plea deal, uh, invoke your Fifth Amendment rights, all of those kinds of things. Um, so we got this news that Joel Greenberg may be cooperating. Jill, what does it mean to say that a person is investigating uh, is cooperating in an investigation. What are the implications of that? Well, in this case, particularly, the implication is that he may be flipping on Matt Gates, that he has significant evidence that could be used to indict and eventually to try and convict Matt Gates. Um, he has to have something that he's offering. If he's going to cooperate, it means he's going to give some help to the prosecution. It means that he's hoping to reduce the charges against him to get a plea deal, a sentencing deal, something that will benefit him in exchange. Um, and cooperation can be anything from, I mean, Michael Cohn became a cooperating witness. He still went to jail. He didn't get out of his guilt. He didn't evade liability, but he has cooperated now in a number of, of cases and is currently cooperating again. Um, in the Watergate case, of course, we had two very significant cooperating witnesses, John Dean and Jeb Magruder, who were two keys to, um, to the convictions. Without them, we would not have had the explanations. Um, Butterfield, Alexander Butterfield, who was an aide to the president, was the one who revealed the tapes, and he became a cooperating witness in terms of just that narrow area. 
So it means that they're helping the prosecution develop a case probably against someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what it means in this case. Yeah. And I know when I was working in the U.S. Attorney's Office, we certainly didn't just take their word for things. They had an incentive to save their own neck. And so uh, we would always try to corroborate things. I often thought of a cooperator as sort of a narrator, somebody who could explain, you know, point you to nuggets of information like documents, dates, times, text messages, and other things. And then when you showed uh, all of these things, they could be sort of a narrator to explain uh, the significance of them and help the jury put that all together. But that corroboration was always essential. Uh, you didn't want a, a witness just making up some story out of whole cloth. Right. And so a corroborator is always a member of the criminal activity. And so they are not the most credible witness. And without corroboration, the jury, it's one crime, you know, one criminal's word against another criminal's word. So you always, always need that cor- corroboration. Um, But even, for example, in Michael Cohn's case, he's probably helping to explain to the DA what all the financial records mean. Mm -hmm. In some of my organized crime cases, it's a question of um, revealing what the code is because they don't talk in normal English. They're hiding things. And so if you have a cooperator, they can say, well, when he says that, this is what it means. They're the translator as well as the narrator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. And so, so Kim, you've been paying attention to this this uh, story as it's been evolving. What are um, what is the potential significance of the case if Greenberg is cooperating? What uh, what consequences could flow from that? Yeah. So legally, and I think it's also important to to point out that even if uh, Greenberg is cooperating, it doesn't. And even if he is flipping, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's on Gates. We don't know mm-hmm. all of the targets of this investigation. It could very well be um, he's cooperating for his own reasons um, to to minimize the the uh, repercussions for himself or for uh, to cooperate in, in association with somebody else who might be involved. There's still a lot about this case that we don't know. Um, but if Gates is implicated in the fact that he is lawyering up the way that he is, the fact that also we learned today that the House is opening uh, the House uh, Ethics Committee is opening an investigation into this, which happens when they have reason to believe something serious is going on. Um, th- this seems like a big deal for Matt Gates. I believe that if he is charged, if he is charged, um, that is bad news for him, not just legally, but also politically. We have seen and we've discussed in the past how particularly Republicans right now, when they are accused of even the worst crimes, the new approach is to just dig in, deny, and just try to ride it out politically, hold on to their office. He, is a, he has said again and again that he will not step down um, and that he and he's denied these allegations and said he's going to move forward. But certainly if he is charged, that changes things. It's, it does not necessarily mean that that's the end of his political career, though. And it's not just, I, I should point out, it's not just Republicans that do this, right? I mean, Senator Robert Menendez, um, who is a, a Democrat from New Jersey, went on trial for corruption. Um, he was acquitted and then he was reelected. So, you know, Democrats can can dig into when they are facing really serious uh, charges. But I don't expect him to back down until he absolutely has to. But this is really politically serious. We have already seen Republicans, even if they aren't calling for him to resign, we've seen them back away from him. He's sort of like kryptonite. We're learning that he didn't have a whole lot of friends here in Washington, even among his fellow Republicans, because this is the time when you have friends that you call on them and they're not really coming out for him, including uh President Trump, he knows he's in big uh, in big trouble, too, because as Barb pointed out, the lawyers that he chose, he chose not just because of their legal chops, but because they have experience in these high profile investigations, whether it comes to uh, the Mueller investigation or the investigation into um, uh, Eric Schneiderman from New York. These were big, high profile cases. And these are the folks who he has on his side. So I think he recognizes that this is serious. Uh, and certainly this could have uh, a big drawback, but it's still too early to know exactly what that might be. Yeah. Do you guys think that, um, you know, this uh, playbook that we've seen from President Trump where, um, you know, the best defense is a good offense. You get in, you deflect, you accuse other people. You know, he was talking about um, the fact or allegation that he was being extorted. 
Um, do you think that uh, that is the new way that politicians will seek to defend themselves when they're accused of crimes? And do you think there's a likelihood that it will be successful? I think that's a great question, right? Because as long as it's successful, people will keep doing it. But one of the realities that Gates is facing is that if it's true that he's being investigated for sex trafficking a minor, he's looking at a federal case that carries a mandatory uh, minimum sentence of 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, He does not look to me, and I don't mean this pejoratively, he just doesn't look to me like somebody who can do 10 years in federal prison, and he will be highly motivated to cut a deal with prosecutors to give up anything that he knows about anyone else in order to avoid doing time in prison. He runs the risk if he goes too far down the the road in fighting back. For instance, if he's indicted and if when they sit down and they're shown the evidence by prosecutors, if it's clear that prosecutors have the evidence, by continuing to bluster, he could be foreclosing working out a good cooperation deal for himself that would lead you know, give prosecutors the ability to prosecute others who are engaged in wrongdoing. So it's a very dicey call for folks in this position to make. Yeah, I think that when you represent a client who is someone in the public eye, like a congressman, you have to think about the court of law and the court of public opinion. Um, But at the end of the day, there's only one that can take away your liberty, the court of law. So I think that when there's a conflict between those two interests, you have to be very respectful of the court of law. I think this, you know, deflect, deny, uh, accuse strategy can only go so far. You know, that is the playbook of politicians. But I think once you get into court where facts matter uh, and judges um, aren't going to put up with that sort of defense, uh, I think it's a very different ball game. And so I think having good counsel at, like the ones that he has hired uh, may be helpful to him. It, it might be the the splash of cold water he may need. But of course, at this point, um, all we have are allegations. So we'll see how that shakes out. But Barb, I want to just take a little issue with what you said, because when you say it's the path of politicians, it's the path of Republican politicians. Democrats seem to resign and get out. Um, it's happened with a number of people with sexual representative Porter uh, or Hill, what's her name? Hill? I think maybe Hill. Katie Hill. Katie Hill. Hill. Katie Hill um, Al Franken. Uh, they they all left. But there is there is a model being created that started with Donald Trump of deflect and deny um, disinformation that seems to have worked for him. Um, I don't think it's working so well for Matt Gates. The evidence seems to be coming out and the crime is one that is so repulsive that it may not work in this situation. And I mean, to be fair, I mean, I pointed out Senator Menendez that did not involve a sexual allegation. That was a, a corruption allegation. But there, there's also there's also um, a New York Governor Andrew Cuomo who is right. taking the dig in route. So I, I think that we do see yeah. it in a bipartisan mm-hmm. yeah. way, but certainly more Republicans and certainly Republicans are more apt to give cover to fellow Republicans who take this. The difference with Al Franken is he resigned because there was a groundswell of calls from within the Democratic Party calling on him to resign. And and then he finally did. That is something you certainly do not see happen among Republicans. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's probably also too soon to say that with regard to Matt Gates, right? He hasn't been charged with anything yet. Um, really, we only know about this investigation because he has made statements about it, trying to get ahead of it. And so we'll have to see what the evidence shows. But his lawyer, uh, the cooperator Greenberg, said something yesterday like, you know, Matt Gates is not going to be sleeping very well uh, from, from now on or something like that, which was kind of ominous, but suggested to me as being sort of a hint that the cooperation that is part of this plea deal does relate to Matt Gates. Um, and, you know, there's some reporting that they've exchanged text messages and other things. So uh, we'll have to stay tuned and see how how those facts shake out. But but really interesting. And, you know, I saw one thing written that um, uh, cooperation usually tries to work its way up the food chain, that you want to use lower level cooperators to go against uh, higher level cooperators. And the way it was framed was and so prosecutors will want to go after him because he's a sitting congressman. And I think that's wrong. 
Absolutely, it is the case that you want to go use lower level people to go against higher level people, but it doesn't reflect their stature in society. It is the egregious nature of their conduct. And so, you know, you want to use someone whose conduct was uh, less serious to cooperate against someone whose conduct was more serious. Absolutely true, but not simply because of a position that they hold. Uh, and so I want to want to clarify that. I think you're exactly right about that, Barb. The most, I think, reprehensible part of Greenberg's conduct is the fact that he's an elected official. You know, he's not a congressman. He's a a state, local elected official. And he's actually using his official power to perpetrate these frauds and, and to access information he's not entitled to. Jill, how have you been sleeping lately? Much better. It's quite a surprise. I took the Helix quiz And as a result, I got this little package, and I couldn't believe it was actually a mattress. It was something that my husband and I could pick up and take upstairs, and then it just sort of opens up and inflates itself. It's unbelievable. What about you? Same thing here. You know, our old bed was a little bit too soft for my taste, and so we have a Helix, and it's the firm mattress. Easy to unpack easy to put into operation, and a lot more comfortable. Yeah, it's a surprise because my husband and I have different sleep styles and different sizes, and it accommodates both of us. And we're so happy with the Helix. It's really been wonderful. We really are enjoying. I'm not waking up with back pain in the morning, which I used to do on my older, firmer mattress. It's really great when you can find something like this that you love and that really improves your life. So you can go to helixsleep.com slash sisters to take their two-minute sleep quiz. And just like Jill and me, you'll be matched with a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash sisters. That's helixsleep.com slash sisters for up to $200 off and two free pillows. Thanks to Helix for sponsoring this episode, and we thank you, our listeners, for supporting Helix. Let's go on to our next topic and talk for a moment about vaccine passports, something that's increasingly being mentioned in the news. Jill, did you want to kick off on that one? Yeah, I do. Um, We're talking about these COVID-19 vaccine passports, which are now one of the most divisive issues across the U.S. Several states, including New York, are embracing the idea. My own state of Illinois sort of has embraced the concept. Uh, with some limitations, but others like Texas and Florida have banned them. It's now become the new mass cultural issue. It is something that has become so politicized that I think we need to look at it so that our listeners can understand um, what they are, who's objecting, why they're objecting, who wants them and why, and whether such a document is even legal. So let's start with what are they? Is passport a misnomer because it's not used for international travel? Um, and I, I wish we were on, you know, a YouTube thing because I brought with me somewhere here. I have my passport, which you guys can see. And inside my passport, and I don't know how many of you have this, is my yellow health card. This is something I've been using. I found mine today. 95 is the, 1995 is my cholera vaccine and typhoid in 96. And it goes all the way to 2013 to something I can't possibly read. But um, so we have been carrying in a way a COVID uh, type medical document. So who wants to start with what are they and um, is there a precedent for them, which I've just showed you there is. Well, I'm fascinated by the different forms they can take. I think the first issue is, Is it a piece of paper that you carry, or is it something that lives on your phone? Not everyone has access to to being part of the digital commons. 
So it can be very difficult for some folks, and at least at some level, there will have to be access to physical pieces of paper that some folks can carry around. Yeah, so I think that's a very good uh, point to make, uh, Joyce. And and the, the answer to your question right now, Jill, is we don't know. We don't know because there is no unif- uniform standard to what these vaccine passports or vaccine certifications will take. Right now, the Biden administration has said that they will come up with guidance, but that they want any sort of vaccine passport uh, program to be spearheaded by the private sector uh, and by um, uh, private or uh, by nonprofit organizations. And that gets to one of the problems is people have a really big problem with the idea of a government mandate, a government um, do- a government issued document that allows people, some people to go places and denies the right of other people to go other places. That can lead to a very show me your papers uh, type of feeling. And that really leads uh, to a lot of concerns here. So um, you know, in in full disclosure, I'm a member of the Boston Globe's editorial board, and we issued an editorial this week saying that they can be a good idea with protections. And to that point about paper documents and what's different from the cards that people who have gotten their vaccines, right, they got a card that the person who gave you the vaccine filled out and is from the CDC. Um, the problem with just using those is those can so easily be forged. Anybody can get a hold of one of those things, write a name and a birth date on it and hand it to someone. So the, you want something a little more secure. And we talked to uh, Jeff Singer from the Cato Institute. The Cato Institute, which is a conservative-leaning libertarian organization that has voiced some concerns about the use of this. But he said, you know, it could work if it looks something like the paper boarding passes that you use to board a plane, not the things on your phone because that's electronic data that can be stored who knows where, and that can lead to privacy concerns. But if you have a piece of paper with a barcode that when it's scanned, wherever you're going to a concert, to a ball game, to school, can be scanned and it says, okay, this the holder of this document got vaccinated on this date, got this kind of vaccine um, in this place, then that takes away this idea of central control. It takes the government out of it. It makes it more secure because the person has the information with them. And that's an idea of what these things can look like. Um, But we don't have that guidance yet. Um, We'll wait to see what the Biden administration says and what uh, private enterprises, really, private, the private sector chooses to do. So interesting, isn't it, that um, there's more trust in the private sector than there is in our own government, you know, which is really, you know, the government is us, right, of, by, and for the people. And yet, I think, uh, you know, the, the skepticism is not without merit uh, when you think about um, other systems. I know, Joyce, in preparing for this, we talked a little bit about, you know, in Nazi Germany, or pre-Nazi Germany, there were... Um, uh, census is taken and census data that indicated people's religion, wh- which data was given very innocently for well-intentioned purposes. And then when the Nazis came into power, it was used against people to round up the Jews. And so even um, if collected with good intentions can be abused down the road. Um, but, you know, with regard to government involvement in this, it's certainly permissible under the law for the government to mandate that everyone be vaccinated. Uh, schools do it, universities do it. And there's, uh, you know, the leading case on this, I know this got a lot of play in the early days of COVID, a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Uh, When there was a smallpox outbreak, the Supreme Court said that, uh, you know, individual liberty is not absolute. And when there is a strong state interest in protecting public safety, as when there is some sort of pandemic, um, then that justifies uh, government ordering things like you know, vaccination. So I think they could do it. I think they could even require passports. But the question is, just because the government can do something, does that mean it should do something? So uh, let's and look I think at, that- can we look at the arguments against doing it and the arguments for doing it? Because uh, a lot of this doesn't sound so scary to me in the forms, you know, as defined and limited as we've been talking about it. Uh, what's the best argument against it? Well, I I just I want to start by saying I I think there are two different groups of arguments. There are genuine concerns 
that have been raised by a, a number of folks across the ideological spectrum about these. And then there's the politicized, nonsensical arguments that are being raised to make this a part of the culture war, like masks that we saw during the pandemic. There are folks, particularly from the right, saying, oh, look at Democrats being so hypocritical. They don't want people to use an ID to vote, but they want people to use an ID to be able to go into a restaurant. That's politicized nonsense, okay? There's a big difference between uh, imposing restrictions that have been proven and shown uh, to reduce access to the polls in some in some people and trying to further a government interest in keeping everyone safe as you reopen an economy, particularly before we reach herd immunity in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm going to just dismiss that outright. But the real arguments against this, one is privacy, which is a big argument. If there were some sort of electronic uh, phone app, for example, that would require a lot of people's personal medical information to be stored in a central location, and that can make it really rife for hacking. There is the um, arguments of government overreach. While the government, Barbara's absolutely right, the courts have said that the government can mandate things like vaccinations for certain purposes, that still makes people feel like this is big brother, this is overreach, um, and and that's government waiting too far, telling people what they can and cannot do. And then there's certainly the concern about equity and equal access. We know just from things like voter ID laws that certain documents are easier for some people to get than others. And it tends to be the most vulnerable folks, the folks who would need this the most, that may have the hardest time accessing it. So these are the valid concerns against it that I've seen. One other concern, and I'm not sure if this is an argument for or against the vaccines, but in, in the absence of some sort of a national stance on getting these passports, right, Biden, they seem to have come out and pretty clearly said, at least for now, there's not going to be a federal plan. So we'll have different rules in the 50 different states, sort of like 50 quarterbacks all throwing footballs at once. And I think it may become very confusing. I'm sure if I'm home in Alabama, I'll never have to show a vaccine passport but if I want to see a show on Broadway when it reopens, I may need one. So the confusion is is really going to be an additional feature of this landscape. And Joyce, you raised the confusion domestically, which is absolutely right. But I also think then put the international um, issue in play as well. And it's even more so uh, if you want to travel to a foreign country, do you need one? Um, if, you, if visitors want to come to the United States, do they need one? What if they have been vaccinated by a vaccine approved in China or Russia or England that is not approved in the United States? Uh, do we want to accept that? And so it gets complicated. And I think if we're going to have these, we need to work out some um, unified rules about what is going to be accepted or not. So it has a lot of uh, potential wrinkles. It does, but it also has some very strong supporters who argue that it would speed things up at the airport if it was digitized. That goes to the, should it be in paper or just digital? Um, that it could provide an incentive to get vaccinated. That it is something that is necessary for certain countries. Right now, you can't go to certain countries, but maybe if you could prove that you were vaccinated, that they would allow you to travel. And it's an existing form that has been required for many years for certain diseases before you travel to some countries. So there are some arguments that are um, in favor of it. New York argues that it would help allow society to return to normal activities by letting people who are vaccinated do more uh, robust activities pre-pandemic style than they can right now. And... Um, what do you think? Are those valid arguments in favor of it? I wouldn't say that I uh, have made a decision about this is a good or a bad thing, because I think there are valid arguments on both sides. You know, One of the reasons we've had to lock down and close down so much of society is because we had to treat everybody as if they had COVID, right? As if they were um, going to infect the rest of us. That's why we, we can't go about our business. 
if you allow people to move about who can show a card, um, then you can relax a lot of those restrictions. It could have benefits for businesses, for example. You know, in Michigan, they're talking about closing down restaurants again. But uh, if you said only those who have proof of vaccine can come into your restaurant, now your restaurant can still operate. Um, when I go get my hair done, when I walk in the door, they take my temperature, I fill out a form, I answer a series of questions, I sign a document. Um, that would really be no different from what I would do if I were to present some sort of uh, vaccine, you know, proof of vaccine or vaccine passport. So I think it is a way to get, get us back in the system. And I think that it's something that doesn't need to be forever. Uh, you know, the COVID pandemic is here for a short period of time. And so with some of the precautions we've talked about to protect privacy and equity, it seems like it is a way to get us back in in business uh, without having to wait for full herd immunity, which might be in, you know, sometime in 2022. Barb, do you worry at all that it's a slippery slope? You know, if we do it for COVID, you might be right, and it just might be one singular crisis and limited to that but what if it makes it easier ultimately for, I mean, this is a fascinating trend, right? Businesses asking for your information before you can walk in and use their services. But maybe this becomes something that leads to us being a society where we have to give up more and more of our personal mm -hmm. information over time. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sorry, you directed that to Barb and I jumped in. Sorry no, go that. ahead. I, I, I see that concern, but I think so long as it is a really important um, public interest, in this case, it's undoubtedly a strong public interest, especially since it's becoming clearer and clearer that even when the vaccine is available to everyone, it isn't quite yet, but it soon will be, that we still will not reach the point that uh, experts say constitutes herd immunity for a number of reasons, because there will still be access problems for some, because there is still vaccine hesitancy. I think you're also seeing a growing number of people that are saying, well, you know, if, 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 if enough people are vaccinated now, I don't have to worry about it, um, so that it can serve as that incentive. I think that strong public interest is different than a store just taking your personal information, requiring your personal information, for other reasons. It's a valid point. I've been to China where the amount of information that that places like stores try to get from you and use facial recognition and stuff is really shocking. And I wanted no parts of it. But I, I think that it's a big space between that and what this is trying to do. Um, and I agree with a lot of steps that some like some universities, for example, are requiring proof of vaccination before students can return in the fall in person. It's important to get things going again while keeping people safe. That makes a lot of sense. I know I'll sleep a lot more easily. Our youngest kid goes off to college in the fall. I'll be a lot happier knowing that he's around people who've been vaccinated. This week's episode is sponsored by Audible, the number one source of spoken word entertainment. Kim, I know you're a fan of Audible. How are you using Audible these days? Well, I've really loved how Audible helped me through the pandemic, frankly, because um, with all of the news that was coming in and the worry about uh, COVID-19, I kind of escaped by using Audible to listen to some biographies of some of my favorite folks. Um, I really loved Mariah Carey's autobiography, also Andre Leon Talley, just how these people talk about their lives and sort of provide a little escapism for me uh, when I was trying to get through the darkest times of the last year. How about you, Barb? How do you use Audible? You know, escapism is probably similar for me, too. Uh, you know, it, it, like you, I do a lot of reading all day. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts for information. And when I'm out running or walking or doing chores, I like to listen to things that are a little bit lighter and more entertaining. So I listened to two really great things very recently. I listened to Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants. Very oh, funny. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And what's great about the Audible version is it's Tina Fey reading it. So it's funny. You know, she she has a funny tone and, uh, you know, she reads it in a voice that's far funnier than it would be on the written page. And the other great thing I listened to re re recently is a 10 part podcast series with Keegan-Michael Key called The History of Sketch Comedy. It was fantastic. Um, you know, he talked about Saturday Night Live and Second City and all of these things. And again, you know, he kind of acted out some of the skits and I found that entertaining. It was 
I, I would literally laugh out loud on runs and sometimes had to stop because I was doubled over. I'm sure I looked very foolish to the dog walkers and others who were out attending the things. Oh, I love it. And Keegan-Michael Key is also a Michigander, like you and I, Barb. And you know a little factoid, we went to high school together. Ooh. Um, so I will look out for that one, too. So you, too, can try Audible for 30 days on us to download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. Just visit audible.com slash sistersinlaw. That's all one word. Or text sistersinlaw, S-I-S-T-E-R-S-I-N-L-A-W, to 500-500. Please go to audible.com slash sistersinlaw or text sistersinlaw to 500-500. Or use the link in our show notes to claim your free 30-day trial. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring this episode. And we thank you, our listeners, for supporting Audible. So, Kim, we're closing out the second week in the trial of ex-Minnesota cop Derek Chauvin on trial for the homicide of George Floyd. I can tell that there's a lot of interest among our listeners in this trial from the questions we're getting a lot of people seem to be watching along um, like I know all of us are. So as we slowly get to the point where if everything goes right, the judge will deliver the case to the jury and the jury will deliberate and reach a verdict. Were you going to uh, lead us in a conversation about what we can expect when we get to that point? Yeah. So Joyce, we have received questions um, to our podcast. I know I've gotten questions on Twitter and elsewhere about how the trial may end. Um, folks particularly want to know if, for example, a jury verdict um, has to be unanimous, whether it's not just for conviction, but also for acquittal or uh, what a hung jury means and what happens if there is a hung jury. So sisters, with your vast trial expertise, can you give us a little primer uh, about how this trial might, en might end and what listeners should be looking out for? Yeah, there's nine options, I think, because there's three charges and there's three outcomes for each of those three. They can acquit, which requires all 12 jurors to vote for acquittal. They can convict, which requires all 12 jurors to vote for conviction. Or one juror or more could say, no, uh, I don't agree with the other 11 of you. And that results in a hung jury. So each of the three charges are judged separately. So you can have conviction on one, acquittal on another, and uh, a hung jury on a third. But uh, uh, ultimately, there are nine different possible outcomes. Two require unanimous juries, and one requires only one objecting juror. So what comes next after that? What comes next in the event of a conviction? What comes next in the event of an acquittal? And what comes next in the event of a hung jury? So if there's a conviction, the next phase would be sentencing. Typically, there's a probation department that will do an extensive review of the case and make some recommendations to the judge. But there would be a sentencing hearing depending on uh, what crime or crimes uh, Derek Chauvin is ultimately convicted of. This is the kind of case where uh, because there's sort of three different theories for the same homicide, the uh, the sentences would likely merge into whatever is the most serious count of conviction. So if it's one of the murder counts, he would be sentenced on that one. He wouldn't be sort of triple sentenced for the same conduct. But the jury does have the ability to look at each of those in case one of them, say, for example, gets reversed on appeal. You'd have, you know, second degree murder gets reversed on appeal. There'd still be third degree murder as a backstop. So I think the jury will deliver a verdict on all three, as Jill said, and then the the court at sentencing uh, will merge. And I think the sentence for uh, the highest penalty there is uh, is 40 years for the second degree murder, although sentencing guidelines are typically less than that. And I've heard that there's something like 10 to 12 years. If there is an acquittal, then um, Mr. Chauvin is free to go. He is uh, no longer under any sort of charge by the state. Now, there may be civil civil lawsuits that follow from this. Um, there is the uh, we know that there was a civil payout that was made uh, by 
the city of Minneapolis, I think $27 million to George Floyd's family, but there could be other consequences for him in addition to this, but he would be free to go from any criminal consequence. And then the most interesting one is what happens after a hung jury. Um, that means he was neither acquitted nor convicted. And because the jury um, verdict did not come to fruition, that means that double jeopardy does not bar the state from trying him again. And so prosecutors would get together and regroup and decide, should we go forward? Do we think this was simply one holdout juror who just simply saw the world in a very different way than we would expect most typical groups of 12 people to see it? Or was this a case where, you know, it was a 6-6 type of deadlock and it was so difficult for anyone to decide? We can't imagine that a new trial would have a different outcome. So it would be up to the prosecutors to decide whether they want to go forward and try the case over again. And Joyce, so what should listeners be looking out for in the remaining days of this trial to get a clue as to what jurors might do? Although, you know, as a lawyer, I know you never really know what a juror might, what jurors might do until they do it. I'm realizing as we're watching this trial, how much I've always depended for my assessments of juries on the visual cues that you get from jurors, because of course we can't see this jury. We can only see the lawyer's. And one of the things we used to say in my old office was that a happy jury doesn't convict. When jurors walked back into the courtroom ready to deliver their verdict and they were laughing and joking with each other, that was when you knew that there was a problem. Because for juries to convict defendants, even in cases that they think are righteous, it's a very somber moment. Um, We don't know, except for these brief bursts that we get from pool reporters, what the juries are doing. You know, we hear that they're taking notes or not taking notes, which I don't really give any um, accreditation to in terms of where they are. I do want to say the evidence that we have heard is painful. It's really hard to listen to, but I think it's very serious evidence. And I tend to really be the one who holds back on thinking that the prosecution can get a conviction in cases like this. That may be because I live in Alabama and I've tried too many cases where we've had juries hang um, or even refuse to convict. But the evidence in this case really is incredible. And yesterday we heard testimony that there was a period of two minutes and 44 seconds after the EMT said that they had not found a pulse and during which period of time Chauvin remained on George Floyd's neck and on his back. That seems to me to be evidence that this jury will take very seriously, but it's interesting that prosecutors have given them options. Murder two, which is felony murder, murder three, depraved heart, and then the manslaughter charge, which although it sounds less serious, it would still be a very serious conviction against this police officer, a felony charge, that would send him to prison for a period of years. So as we head towards this closing period in the trial, I think we'll all be listening for the arguments that both sides are mustering. And then we'll just have to wait and see what the jury does. I just want to close by saying there was much made about the fact that there was a juror nodding off at one point (laughs) during the testimony. I I, I would think that all y'all would agree with me. Jurors not off sometimes. I think way too much was being made about it. It's really hard to sit in one spot, especially when you're hearing a lot of technical testimony and not expect somebody to close their eyes for a minute to maybe not be paying super close attention at every minute. It's happened to all of us in jury trials. Um, Usually, you know, somebody taps that juror or notice passed or, you know, the judge asked the juror if... uh, if they're okay, and that usually that little bit of embarrassment is enough to to wake them up. Um, I, I think a little much was made out of that little fact, and I think that's one thing that our listeners might have heard. That's absolutely right. We've all had that experience every once in a great while. There's a juror who sleeps through most of the trial, <laughs> and at some points, one of the lawyers says to the judge, "Listen, juror number six has been asleep for the last you know six hours of trial. He hasn't yes. heard anything." Well, and if they're the asleep for that long, the, yes. You know, the but judge will like shake his just... head or her head yes. and replace that juror with one of the alternates. Yes. One of the problems here is they're only working with two alternates. So I think the judge will hold out till the last possible minute. Yeah. Sometimes I nod off during these podcast recordings just when Joyce is talking. <laughs> she has such a lovely voice, that's all. <laughs> I'll come read your bedtime story tonight. <laughs> that would be perfect. I think it's also yeah, fair this, to note that- lulling in, voice. In the time that the juror fell asleep here, 
was in between what were very emotional segments. The case started with the emotional testimony of witnesses who had been traumatized by seeing this. And it's now back to some pretty intense medical testimony. It's hard to imagine how intense the testimony yesterday and today is, but I think the jury is completely engaged again based on pool reporting. And we are, as, as Joyce pointed out, we're not seeing the jury, which is makes it very hard to predict how they're reacting. Um, and, and I don't like taking someone else's opinion of it. I would love to see them. But of course, if they're wearing masks, you sort of are denied that as well. You really can't tell just, you know, if you cover your face and you only see eyes, you can tell something, but it's not the same as being able to see and uh, and change your tactics in trial. If you see the jury nodding off or stopping taking notes, you have to change your rhythm, your tone, or the witness. So I think there are some disadvantages here, but mostly I think it's it's it was a small thing that happened and we shouldn't make a big deal of it. And I think one of the things you're pointing to is that um, sitting through trials is exhausting under mm-hmm. the best of circumstances. Um, it's intense. It's emotional. And, you know, it's not like sitting there watching a television show or a movie. It is riveting. You're seeing uh, real human suffering. You know, in this case, those bystander witnesses who talked about their feeling of helplessness and guilt uh, by watching George Floyd die before their eyes. It's exhausting to to listen to that, emotionally exhausting. And so, you know, the idea, Kim, that a, a juror nodded off when they moved on to something else is not surprising. It's a it's a very emotional experience and it leaves you feeling, you know, just spent. So um, it, especially when it's, it's lasting several weeks, they've got to, you know, come back and rally yeah. every day and beyond. So it's, it's hard work to be a juror and I, I appreciate their service very much. And the biggest difference from a television show is you compared it to is that in television, all of the wait time is eliminated. Only sharply worded questions are asked and concise answers are given. And it's not, let me find that document and it takes you five minutes of shuffling through papers or looking through a screen. So, you know, it's easy to wander off if you're a juror watching uh, sidebars that go on for a long time that you can't hear. You're wondering, what are they talking about? And so your mind wanders and that's how jurors lose their interest. The one last thing about trial outcomes we haven't said and we should flag for down the road is that if there is a conviction, Chauvin will likely file an appeal. So this case won't end with the jury's verdict. If, if there is a verdict of conviction, there's a lot more ahead of us. Let's go to some listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your questions during the show, Keep an eye on our Twitter feeds during the week. We'll answer as many questions as we can there. Our first question comes from at gal space norcal, and she asks, can you expand on your point that the filibuster can be amended so laws can be passed by senators who represent 60% of the population? How feasible is that? Jill, I think that one's for you. Okay. Um, The concept of it is that right now we require 60 senators to vote to close debate to allow a vote on any legislation where the filibuster is being used. The concept is to replace 60 senators with somebody, uh, with representative senators who represent 60% of the population. Right now, Democrats are 50 and Republicans are 50. But the 50 Democratic senators represent 70% of the population. And so this would bring back the idea that majority rules by having the majority of the American population be able to control what gets a vote in the Senate. And I think it's an interesting and very possible amendment without eliminating filibuster allowing the minority to make their arguments. I think we could also add to that that they have to make arguments that are relevant to the legislation that's being debated and not just reading the Constitution. So that's the explanation for the 60% filibuster cloture. 
But good luck getting Joe Manchin to vote for that, right, Jill? (laughs) Well, he has said he won't do anything on any of this. But I think as we see gridlock take over once again, and that voting rights are taken away, and serious things need to be attended to, that maybe even Joe Manchin will feel the pressure to take some action to allow a vote. Doesn't guarantee the vote outcome, but to at least let there be a vote. So our second question comes from Jack on Squarespace. How do all of you feel about lifetime judge appointments? Who wants to start? Yeah, I can start on that. I've had an evolution. Um, I used to think that it was really important that judges be appointed for life so that they are answerable to no one but themselves uh, and their uh, jobs to interpret the law and the Constitution in the way that they see is right. Um, And I, I have always been and remained opposed to elected judges of any sort. I think putting judges in a political context is really devastating for justice. But especially seeing the what has happened to Supreme Court confirmations in recent years, I think I now am more in line with the proposals that, um, at least for the Supreme Court, that judges be nominated for specific terms for a specific period of time to take the politics out of uh, this waiting game like we're hap- like that's happening right now involving Justice Breyer, everyone wondering when he might retire so that Joe Biden can have a chance to um, have a court pick that diversifies the court. Um, it takes that out of it. And we can just, the judges and the public can just worry about the fairness of these opinions as opposed to the politics behind selecting judges. So I've changed my mind. That's interesting. You know, um, we used to say, welcome to federal court where the judges are appointed for life and it seems longer. (laughs) (laughs) But I've always kind of appreciated the lifetime appointment because I perceived that it took some politics out of it. If a judge and, you know, maybe this is more true at the trial court level. If a judge knows I am here for life and whatever the consequence of my decision I don't have to worry about how it's going to be perceived for my next job. You know, I'm not looking to go uh, be a partner in a big law firm or get a job in a corporation or with some, uh, you know, big foundation. I am here and this is all, this is what I'm going to do. And so I, I worry that without a lifetime appointment, they might feel more political pressure um, to justify their decisions. You know, they might want to do something that's popular in their local community, even if they think it has you know, is legally the wrong answer. Um, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, I suppose if we were to impose terms on Supreme Court justices or other judges, you would want those terms to be of sufficient length that they weren't looking over their shoulder and trying to campaign for their next job. So I would take it from a slightly different perspective, which is my absolute distaste and horror at election of judges. People voting do not know who they're voting for or why. It's really, really terrible. And in Illinois, the process for getting on the ballot is totally political. So I am very much against electing judges for a term. Uh, I agree with Kim on the idea of a term limit for the Supreme Court. That will keep a balance in the court that we don't currently have where you have predictable appointments by different administrations. And I think that that is a good thing for the Supreme Court. I don't see it so much as necessary at the uh, Court of Appeals, and and now I'm talking federal court in Illinois, I was talking about state elected judges, but um, for the Court of Appeals or for the district court federally, um, I, I don't think lifetime is such a terrible thing You do get judges. um, I just did a a commentary on the Chicago 7 trial. You can get a bad federal judge who's really, really, really horrible, uh, Judge Julius Hoffman. But removal is the proper way of dealing with a judge who's so beyond the norm, rather than saying you shouldn't have lifetime appointments there. It's a tough problem. The courts have become so much more important over the last four years 
when we've had an out of control executive branch and the legislature doesn't seem to have been a, a very effective check. I think as a as a country, we've all come to rely a lot more and think a lot more about what makes for an effective judiciary. And something that I thought was very interesting was that when the founding fathers were creating uh, some of this scheme, and of course the courts have expanded over the years, but people had much shorter life expectancies. And so this problem that Barb identifies where they were thinking about their next act really didn't exist. So although I love the notion that we have judges who aren't thinking about who's mm-hmm. going to you know, butter their next slice of bread, I do think we could do something like have a, a mandatory age for retirement or something along those lines that, that would help with some of these problems that we've seen. It's a really interesting um, issue. And I note that just today, the president has appointed a commission uh, that will be looking at the Supreme Court in particular, a commission that includes both um, one of Barb's law school colleagues and one of mine. So that'll be something to keep an eye on for the future. Our last question comes from Elizabeth in Chicago, Illinois. She asks, as a paralegal, I understand that attorneys are the, the headliners in the work context. But I was curious to hear if any of you had been a paralegal prior to becoming an attorney and what you think makes a great paralegal or legal assistant. Well, I have been blessed to have some great paralegals and legal assistants, um, and they are your partner and you can't do the job without them. I'm thinking of my my great legal assistant, Stacey Harris, who I have to name. I mean, I I sat beside her every, every day and um, we work together so closely. I mean, it's almost like you have, uh, uh, you know, a, men- a mental mind meld because you're working together so closely. Um, and then with paralegals in the courtroom, I find them to be incredibly helpful. Um, one of the things you want, to, you want in a paralegal is someone who is organized and has a meticulous attention to detail. Uh, when we would try cases, we always had a paralegal in the courtroom who was managing all of the exhibits. Uh, much of the uh, evidence is displayed in a courtroom electronically on a big screen. And there may be hundreds of exhibits and you want to show, you know, you say to your paralegal, hey, can you show that one record, the form, you know, the one that the doctor signed that looks really bad for the defendant? You know, it's red ink. Remember that one? And I want you to blow up the paragraph where his signature is. And like, boom, up it goes because they have memorized the list. They know exactly where it is. They know what that document is. So as you're giving your closing argument or as you're in, in questioning a witness, uh, they can call up the relevant document that is necessary there. So um, I found paralegals to be of incredible value for that and many other tasks. But that in particular, they were really the unsung heroes of, of trial work. So let me take it from a different point of view, which is, Um, I was the partner in charge of the paralegals at my uh, law firm, Jenner and Block. And so in civil, they are absolutely uh, essential, not just in court, but in the preparation, in the depositions, in the uh, preparation for trial. And we couldn't have done the work without them. But I also want to point out that when I started practicing, there were no paralegals. There were no computers And the first paralegals that I ever had was in the Watergate trial. Um, That was also the first computers. And we've come a long way with the training. Um, I mentored someone who I actually thought was going to become a lawyer um, since he was in high school. And he decided he really didn't want to be a lawyer, that he wanted to be a paralegal and got his master's in paralegal studies and is having a fabulous career. So I want to take it from that standpoint. It's a great career. It has opened so many doors to him, and I know how much he enjoys it. So they are valuable to us as both trial lawyers and both criminal and civil, but it's a great career path. So it's something everybody should consider. I always thought having a good paralegal or legal assistant at my side was what let me be you know, let me be a good lawyer, focus on what I could do. And something that I was always grateful for, I started out at a big law firm in Washington, D.C. at, at Errant Fox, Kintner, Plotkin, and Kahn. And I was blessed with the most wonderful paralegal and legal assistant. And as a brand new lawyer, I learned a lot from them. You know, you go straight out of law school to work and you think that you know everything. 
They were so incredibly gracious about never making me feel stupid, but helping me learn everything I needed to know that I didn't know. And I'm still really grateful for that all these years later. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Wine-Banks, Kim Atkins, and me, Joyce Vance. Don't forget to send in your questions for next week by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. And please support this week's sponsors, Helix and Audible. You can find their links in the show notes. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. Well, y'all, my husband turns 60 tomorrow, and my <gasps> evil best birthday. friend, who is also his best friend, we all went to law school together. She decided to throw him a party just for our six closest friends. And she sort of she's just a little bit different. And so she has picked a theme. It's a scary clown party. So I I will be nope. up at the crack of dawn working on my clown costume because, nope. you know, your first reaction is, Eva, I am not doing this. But now I feel the competition because everybody else is working on their stuff. I so I need a clown name and a costume. By I, I think Rudy never. Giuliani or Donald Trump would do. Oh. I would never go clowns. to that party. Clowns <laughs> are not funny. They are scary on their own. They don't need to be made scarier. That is that is a form of torture. I would have nightmares for weeks. Aww. No.